let me just share with you inside a preacher's brain some of the strange things that, that happen when uh, a message that... Um, it had its birth in my Christian ed class. We're working through Judges. And I asked the class if I could kind of rework it. And I did. It's not exactly the same. But when you, you, you go through preparing, thinking about what you're going to say... And you have a concern that, that you can't make other people feel the weight of importance in what you're saying. In other words, that, that the people hearing it might not think of it as sort of a landmark kind of a subject. I don't mean the sermon is great. I mean the subject, the text, the topic. That, that I view it as being one of the more important messages I've ever preached. But I'm not sure that... You will see it that way, and that's why I prayed that God would help. I, I view this as being a really crucial text. And my hope is that I can make you feel the same way about it. It's a long text. Judges chapter 2, 1 to 14. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum. And he said, I have brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, quote, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out. That's their enemies. I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become as... As thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and they wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, which means weeping. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the lands which had been allotted, parceled out, and they were to go in and take their portion, each of the tribes of Israel. Seven. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all that generation... Joshua's generation, were gathered to their fathers. They died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, those idols, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods 
from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. Do not listen to anyone who tells you that the wrath of God is somehow just tied up in the nature of sin, not in the character of God. This is provoking the Lord to anger. 13. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And so the anger of the Lord was kindled, like a match to dry wood, kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. We prayed when I was standing out there. Sad words, these. Book of Judges opens with this brief synopsis of Israel's failure to obey the Lord. And the purpose of this reminder is to stamp deeply in our minds that disobedience to the Lord follows people follows careless, thoughtless people. It follows them relentlessly into their futures. Other lives are affected, always affected. And so the Lord shows these careless people something they should have seen coming, but they didn't see it coming. The next generation, after Joshua's generation, the next generation would reap all sorts of painful results of the easy neglect of the previous generation. I say easy neglect because the first generation, they didn't feel the actual pain of their neglect as fully as the next generation would feel the pain of their neglect. The the, the gradual cultural accommodation, when they were in the early stages of it, it, it seemed painless, inconsequential. Harmless. And so these verses in Judges 2, they're they're full of God's painful grace. He, He tells the people in advance the cause of the hard lives they're about to experience. They failed to drive out the enemies as God had instructed. They just they just didn't. To follow God meant that they would have to be against the pull of the cultures in which they were presently immersed. To follow God meant they would have to resist the pull of the present cultures in which they were immersed. And nobody enjoys being against what seems natural to everyone around them. Who does? You can read the record of their failure all through the first chapter of Judges. They tried to manage what God said had to be eliminated, and significantly, the place where this pronouncement of their failure was made is called bokum, which means weepers or weeping. Of course, we all fail the Lord. We all fail him at different times and in different ways. We need to ask for forgiveness far more than we do. 
We're constantly in need of fresh repentance. But that's not the issue. That's not really the issue with Israel in in this text. They were disobedient in a deeper sense than than just mere failure. Their disobedience was more uh, foundational. They had failed to drive out the enemies when they first entered the promised land, and they were still not driving them out. So they had grown accustomed to living with what God said could not be accommodated, and they were still doing it. So their original neglect had now become ongoing. It had become systemic. And they persisted in their carelessness because, I'll tell you why. Because initially, there were no rapid effects from their carelessness. They, they couldn't sense their own spiritual drift. God wasn't turning everybody to pillars of salt. They didn't have to drive the enemies out if they didn't want to. They could marry their wives. They could adopt their religion. It was far more peaceable, wasn't it? They couldn't sense their own spiritual drift, and now they're serving their own spiritual drift. So in other words, they were embracing past disobedience by continuing in it. They, they never consciously processed their real guilt. They never felt the weight of it. So they were now sowing to their disobedience. And that kind of disobedience, it isn't something easily left behind. Significantly, the very, the very compromise, the very neglect, the very disobedience that they thought was going to make life easier for them, no war, no bloodshed. So the very thing they thought was going to be easier than God's command turned out to be a source of grief, hence bokum, weeping. There's a lesson in that. There's a lesson in that. They were now serving what once seemed such an easy accommodation, so simple, and now it was bondage. And they can't, can't get out of it. Then we read about the death of Joshua in verses 8 and 9. This, this had to be a gigantic event for Israel. Joshua spent his whole life, like Moses before him, Joshua spent his whole life, 110 years, trying to turn the people away from their natural, sinful inclinations. Back to the ways of God. And then, sadly, this whole second chapter, it spins out the tale of the people's sin and God's judgment. It's a heartbreaking account. So the core of today's teaching, which starts now, is in verses 10 to 14. Point number one. Notice the impact of the second generation syndrome. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them. Who did not know the Lord. Or, so it's two things here. The work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. So, all that generation, verse 10, 
All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Which generation? Well, Joshua's generation. The people who had entered the promised land. These were the people who had heard the words of Joshua. These were the people who saw the waters part. These were the people who saw the walls of Jericho fall. But that generation, they got old. They finally died off. And after Joshua's generation died off, another generation came along after them. That's the way it works. Who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That's all we're told. They weren't morally wicked at first. They didn't stumble into idolatry maybe right out of the gate. They probably intended, at least at first, to continue in the faith of their leaders, but they just, they just didn't do it. And the reason they didn't do it or couldn't do it was, was because they, they didn't know something. Verse 10. Uh, this. I can't change colors here. Can I do that? Just a minute. Watch this. I'm so high tech. Look at See this? There's the problem. What? Did it work? Cool, eh? If any of you have any problems with stuff, call me. I'm sure I can sort out Okay, so the reason they the reason they they couldn't stay strong and 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 uncontaminated was because they did not know they did not know certain things. Actually, they were lacking in two kinds of knowledge. This is important. They were lacking in two kinds of knowledge, not just one. So they had no living experience of God. They did not know the Lord. And they had no knowledge of what God had done in the past. The work that he had done in Israel. So I take that to mean both kinds of knowledge are needed. It's not enough just to be in some place where people really encounter God. That's very important. People need, people need their own personal experience of God's life and power for sure. And in addition to that, people need to be somewhere in some place where they regularly discipline themselves to learn about what God has done through his word and in redemptive history. They need content. So they need content so they can squeeze all the juice out of their experience with God. So please think about that. Two kinds of knowledge are necessary, not just one. Each generation needs its own experience, its reviving experience of God's spiritual life, and each generation needs to learn and get a deep understanding of God's words, his teaching, his ways. Both. has to be zeal and a zeal according to knowledge. Not enough just to be fired up. There has to be knowledge in it. So, our text says these people had no knowledge of who their God was, verse 10, and they had no knowledge of what God had done. Verse 10. That was the beginning of their spiritual ruin, that next generation. I said that's the beginning, but there was another step. There's always another inevitable step. Next, in sequence, because, because they didn't know certain important things, they didn't know 
who God was and they didn't know what God had done. And because they lacked those things, they bowed down to idols. And the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. This describes the sin they eventually committed. They became idolaters, but they weren't born idolaters. They, they defaulted to idols because of the vacuum in their heart. They did not know God and the vacuum in their head, what God had done. They, they defaulted to idols. When you don't know God, when you don't know his word, when you don't know his works, you cannot help but fall in love with something else. It's so important to read 10 and 11 together. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel, and, that's the connector, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. It's important to remember that pattern. That pattern. The people became idolaters gradually. There may have been some specific time when for the very first time that Israelite bowed in devotion to the idol but the seeds of that idolatry were prepared as the memory and the knowledge of God simply evaporated. Here's, here's, take this home. People who forget this truth rarely understand why sin just pops up the way it does. Without remembering this pattern from Judges, it's almost impossible to do an accurate autopsy on the death and destruction that sin always brings. You simply usually have to look further back, before the actual sin was committed, to find the attitude of heart that made the life vulnerable to that sin. It didn't just hatch. So there's always this timing element in the growth of either holiness or sin. Paul likened it, the growth in our souls, for good or for bad, he likened it to the time that passes between sowing and reaping, sowing to the flesh. So it takes an understanding of, of sequence. To see the invisible connection between the first phase, they did not know the Lord. And they didn't remember what he had done. The connection between that end and the people worshipped idols. Of course. You, you were, you were, God put eternity in every heart. You'll worship something. Point number two. The true motivation for godliness fades when people only consider their own spirituality. I'm still thinking of verses 10 and 11, but the context around those verses is a little bit chilling. Let me read it to you. Judges 2, 7 to 13. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. 
Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, he died 110 years. They buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all the generation, all that generation, were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So notice, notice, just those opening words of, of verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. So as long as two things happened, the people served the Lord. First, they served the Lord as long as Joshua was there to keep prodding them along to serve the Lord. And second... They kept serving the Lord as long as the great miracles of the past, the elders and others shared, as long as the great miracles from the past kept motivating them. But after those two factors were removed, the next generation forgot all about the Lord. So that's the recap. And here's what I want to say as we start our, yes, start our wrap-up of this message. There's a, there's a motive for godliness, another factor. And without this factor, true godliness will, will not be propelled as far into the future as it needs to be propelled. And the reason I want to wrap up with this point is I happen to feel that it might be the most neglected concept in the direction of much of the contemporary church. And I'm hoping maybe we can all remember it. Here it is. Here's the principle. You can't make the most godly decisions for your present life until you consciously make those decisions for the next generation, not just yourself. I think that's the point Paul tries to make when he, you know, Romans 14, 7, that's not up there. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. That's, that's Paul's advice on how Christians should learn to evaluate their attempts to live for God. Well, you, you're, not, you're not doing it alone, he says. That's Romans 14. It's about people trying to sort out. Remember what rules they will apply to their pursuit of God? Are we going to drink? Are we not going to drink? Are we going to eat this? Are we not going to eat that? How are we going to sort out all these rules and regulations carried in from Judaism? People who got saved who were not Jewish at all. All those squabbles and arguments. What they were going to do. So there were so many different situations in the church. And people bring different levels of maturity into the mix, for sure. Some understand freedom in Christ better than others. Some come out of very strained and sordid pasts. Paul says, here's how, you, here's how you start to sort this out. My life, Paul says, isn't the end in itself. It's a pattern for others. You don't live to yourself. You don't die for yourself. Make your decisions for the next generation. 
psalmist says the same thing. He's reading these words in Psalm 78. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and, now here's the opposite of Joshua's setup, and not forget the works of God, right? The exact opposite. But, but keep his commands. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. How shall I live my life? How much time and attention shall I give to God? And, and our text is saying, those are good questions, but you're not ready to answer them until you make another decision First, if you're trying to sort out how you're going to live for God, how much time you should give to following God, how much attention you should give, what price you should pay following Jesus as your Lord. We sing about it all the time. How are you going to sort out how much energy and effort you should put into it? Psalmist says, it's in, it's in uh, 78.6. The psalmist would say, if you're trying to sort out how are you going to follow Jesus? Here's what you do. You look up and down the aisles where you're sitting, and you try and find some expectant mummy with a big tummy. And if you want to sort out how seriously you should be following Jesus, you sort out your life based on that unborn child. You live your life so that those yet unborn will praise him. I can live on such a, a, a small, shrunken spiritual level where I just think about, ooh, should I do this, should I do that? Will I watch this? Will I watch that? And you try and make them in a tiny little context, and the writer is saying, no, 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 you need to push out, push out the boundaries a little bit. You need to think about where stuff goes in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years. What kind of patterns get established? That the next generation might know them. The children yet unborn. So that's, that's, will arise and tell them to their children. So I'm to live my life such that this pregnant mummy, she has a baby in her tummy. Little children know that, and it's a boy or a girl, by the way. And that little baby's going to be born. I'm to live my life in such a way that there's nothing in my life that will trip up that baby. And not just that. That baby is going to grow up and maybe have babies. The generation yet unborn will arise and tell their children. Now, I'm long gone off the scene. And so is everybody else in this room. But my impact doesn't have to be off the scene. 
I've had the blessing. I've had the blessing of living my life shaped by people, by parents, by others who suffered a lot for Jesus. I know it was a different era. My father, my father uh, graduated from Bible school. He dug ditches for Canada Dredge and Dock so that he could plant a church in Welland, Ontario, which is still there. And he could do that in a day when there wasn't a dime of support coming from any district office anywhere in the country. I've been taken to church three or four times a week when there was no children's church and no such thing as a supervised nursery. I was taken to church when I hated being taken to church. So thankful my parents weren't so foolish as to let me make that decision. As a child, I can remember seeing adults. I can remember in Prince George, B.C., my dad pastoring a little church, and I can remember seeing adults quit great jobs at the close of a missionary convention, pack up their young families, and spend the rest of their life on the mission field. I saw that happen. I saw it. In other words, much of the convicting power that has shaped my walk with Jesus was not my own doing. Are you getting the picture? I was shaped by others just as often as I shaped my own life by my own willpower. My parents pretty well forced me to spend an hour each Sunday learning Bible stories in Sunday school. Don't even think of it the way we do it. Go up and look at those beautiful rooms. Any class I can remember was in the basement of a church, several years in the furnace room, seven or eight chairs in a circle with a teacher who wasn't a very good teacher, but there I was every Sunday for an hour with a little flannel graph board, learning a memory verse, hearing the same stories over and over again, an hour every Sunday. You do the math. One hour per Sunday... 52 hours a year, over 20 years, 1,000 hours of Bible stories that got piled up in my head. 1,000 hours. And then there were three services a week. Three hours of Bible teaching a week, 156 hours of Bible teaching a year, over 20 years, 3,120 hours of Bible teaching Add that in with the Sunday school, 4,120 hours of Bible study by the age of 20. Now, all of that's in me. It's not due to any special discipline or intelligence on my part. Other people were investing in the next generation. Now is the point. See, now I take that stored up heritage into everything I do. And, and here's the point. There are many things I can quite safely do now with respect to my own personal choices. I could find some nifty cutting-edge church where they just watch videos and drink cappuccinos. I, could, I can do the one-hour church Sunday morning thing. Lots of people do. In fact, I could probably do one hour every two weeks and make it to glory just fine. I'll bet you anything I could. 
But that's only because I'm bringing into my present church life all that was stacked up in my earlier years. I could probably lighten the pace now and not even notice anything different in my walk with Jesus. That's why millions, multiplied millions of North American evangelicals are supersizing their material, leisure, pleasure, home segments of life. And they can get away with it with no observable difference to their quality of faith. But there's a big change coming, church. There's a huge change coming. We don't see it yet. It will not be the same for the next generation. Because they don't have all that stuff piled up the way I did. They don't have it. They don't, they don't know most of the Bible stories. They're in church less and less. They spend more time in hockey than in church. They will probably have more money the next generation. They'll probably be better educated. They'll know sports and piano and movies better than any of us. But they won't have the stored up heritage that we brought and, and Judges 2.10 is going to become prophetic. It's going to become prophetic. There arose another generation after them. They're going to be in our churches after we're gone. Who, who, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. I take no pleasure in preaching this. It's the kind of, kind of preaching that just makes enemies, really. God help us all to ponder the next generation. They need, more, they need more than a good education and good jobs. And they need more than a bare conversion experience where someone told them they gave their heart to Jesus when they were seven. They need models now of, of radical, sold-out, time-consuming, life-rearranging commitment to Christ. And you, my friend, you're the pattern. You'll never take the right path for your life just by looking at your life. That's what I'm trying to say. Each one must take the path he or she takes. For those yet unborn, so our religion doesn't have a short shelf life. Everybody said?